to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast, where a unique lineup of leaders share their experiences, their strategies, and their lessons learned. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and I'll draw out their leadership tips. Together, we'll explore the insights of this wonderful range of inspiring leaders. Each episode features exclusive interviews with Trailblazer CEOs, generals, and leaders in business, technology, arts, sports, and from entrepreneurs. Discover what worked for them, their secrets to success and to happiness, and how they've overcome multiple challenges. What helped these ordinary people achieve extraordinary results? And what is their mindset that drives and inspires others to high performance by their exemplary leadership? From CEOs to creatives, from visionaries to change makers, our guests share their personal experiences and their pivotal moments. They open up their upbringings and their vulnerabilities with an appealing sense of humility and humanity that have shaped their leadership that you experience today. Leadership takes many forms and can be found in unexpected places. Whether you're an aspiring leader or a seasoned professional seeking further inspiration, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and leadership advice. As one general said to me, you don't have time to make all the mistakes that I've made, so let me share my wisdom to provide you with shortcuts. Consequently, you can use the wisdom from my guests in your own lives and your own businesses to help you be a more inspiring leader yourself. I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and the Inspiring Leadership Podcast starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership. I'm delighted to have a really inspiring leader who I've kept in touch with over the years um, and, and been fascinated by his progress from uh, always in sort of senior chief people officer roles in, in great organizations from Boots, Abbey National, Capital One, uh, Ernst & Young, Freshfields, places like this. And this collective experience of the kind of human side of leadership in businesses, I, I find very interesting. Now he's set his own uh, business up, giving advice to people. So, um, you know, I do advise you might tap into his wisdom experience. But without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Jonathan, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for that kind introduction. And thank you for the invitation to, to join you uh, today. Um, uh, yes, I am. I've now taken that step to have, uh, hopefully, um, what I've learned to call an encore. Uh, career, final phase uh, of my career. I've had a, an amazing uh, career that I've enjoyed over the last 30 odd years uh, in uh, the world of HR and people and culture and organization development. Um, uh, working for some great organizations, as you say, I've been very privileged uh, to uh, hold senior roles at, uh, at those places uh, and enjoyed the variety that it's given me as I've moved from one sector to uh, to another. And you know, rather than staying in the same sector and um, uh, developing my my career there, I'm now excited to be, you know, say, building uh, this new stage of my uh, my career, trying to bring um, the experience that I've, I've gained over the years of working with lots of different leaders, lots of different teams, different organisations at different stages of development with different issues, 
uh, and to offer you know some of the some of the wisdom that I've been able to uh, acquire over over those years uh, to help other organisations be uh, be more successful. Yeah, well, it, it's great, and I think we, you and I are fortunate because we're, we're in slightly different uh, fields within the same area, but but that actually as we get older we don't get so uh, much more redundant but actually more useful in some ways that we've we've seen a range of different experiences we can ask some really curious questions because um people are as they rush through their lives actually getting less and less development themselves as ceo sort of pushed into the role or in a in a, a board role or whatever it might be and that's where sort of that trusted advisor is more useful than i think it's ever been and as you and I were discussing before we started uh, on air. COVID provided, you know, there was no rule book and um, you had to almost go back to some first principles of really what you stand for. Um, we were also talking about sort of inspiring leadership and, and who you found to be inspiring leaders. We, we discussed three people. Would you just perhaps uh, pick out those who are your, your favorites of modeling inspiring leadership and what it is about them that you respect and admire? Uh, yes, well, uh, certainly um, one of my CEOs um, uh, at uh, Capital One, Srini Gopalan, uh, is somebody who, uh, younger than I was, I guess Srini was probably in his late 30s when uh, he'll, he'll, he'll tell me if that was not the case, in his late 30s, I think, when he took on the CEO role. Srini's, you know, uh, such a clever man. He is really, really clever. Uh, but where's that likely? You know, has great humility uh, about himself. Um, and in contrast to some other leaders that I've experienced who, you know, have been, you know, very intelligent, like Kesharine, the ability to be able to synthesize an awful lot of information and make sense of that, and and then to be able to help others really understand uh, what they, the, you know, what they have been able to um, uh, to analyze. You know, it's a great talent of uh, of Shrinis. but you know, he did that in a in a very very humble way, never grandstanding. His ability to be able to interact with people, um, uh, whether it be you know non-executive directors, regulators, you know, through to the security guys on the on the door of the uh, of the building. So, yeah, I've got an enormous amount of admiration for uh, um, uh, for, for for Shrini. Um, there's a head, uh, a chief executive of one of the multi-academy trusts that um, I serve as a trustee on, Simon Elliott. Uh, Simon is, I think, again. Um, one of the most inspiring people uh, that um, that I've met. He's a very different type of character to, to Srini, but his passion and his commitment for what he's trying to do in improving educational standards in you know, difficult places like Newham and, and Hackney in, um, in East, East London, uh, and the commitment that he has built uh, in, the, in, the, in the teaching staff uh, and the support staff in that school, all working. Uh, to improve the life chances uh, of the kids who go through those go through those schools, um, uh, again, somebody who you know um, uh, I think is 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 really inspiring uh, leader. And then another, I would say, uh, very different again, Alice Maynard. Uh, Alice uh, is uh, runs her own business, uh, um, Future Inclusion, providing advice on diversity, uh, equity, and in inclusion issues. Uh, she's got a range of. Uh, activities, including uh, being a non-executive uh, board member at the FCA. Um, Alice uh, is disabled. Uh, I met her first when I was involved with SCOPE, the, the charity that uh, campaigns for disabled uh, people. 
Uh, and uh, I really admire uh, Alice because not only is she just you know, a wonderful human being, incredibly funny, fun to, uh, to, to be with, doesn't take life desperately seriously, but she has overcome many of the challenges that society puts in the way of disabled people uh, in being able to you know, make a full contribution to, uh, to society. Fantastic. And, and there is a theme both in that and in what we've discussed about with your career, Kevin, where, you know, fighting for those less fortunate, even though you realise you've had a very privileged life yourself, um, whether it be that you a card carrying Labour Party member believing that we should sort some things out, particularly after Boris destroyed the country along with Liz Truss, uh, where I see my poor old son trying to get a mortgage where it's going up to 6% from what it was before. It's um, it's very hard. Um, but also this whole area of diversity, equality, inclusion and being an advisor in certain areas there and um, also being an ally um, and, and representing LBGTQ uh, plus um, issues with people. I, do you want to just say a little bit about, about how, why that means so much to you over the years? Yeah, I think um, it, it's difficult to say where it comes from, um, yeah, Jonathan. But you know, for as long as I can remember, I have sort of railed against the unfairness of the of, of the world, uh, and how is it that um, some people benefit from all sorts of advantages: advantages of birth, advantages of education, advantages of the people that they, their parents, uh, their parents know. To the disadvantage of other people who may be equally or even more talented than 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 they are, um, and so I've always had this sense that uh, I would like to make some sort of contribution to making the world a fairer place. Now, I think I've done that mainly in the context of the workplace, uh, and given the roles that I've had, in trying to think about how how do I make this workplace um, fairer. Now, there is also, I have to say. I think a very, very strong commercial argument. Uh, clearly, you know, organizations need the very best talent that they can get. And if they're, if they're fishing in a very limited pool of people who just look like you know, the, the leaders of that organization, then they're not going to have access to that broad range of talent that is, that is available. You know, I, I believe that passionately. And study after study has shown that, that that is true. Organizations that are more diverse, that do have inclusive cultures, are commercially more uh, successful. And that shouldn't really be a surprise to us. Is of course you bring together the talents of different people with different perspectives to tackle difficult problems. And the more brains that you've got in the room that are looking at it from a, a problem from a different angle, the more likely it is that you're going to get to a really good, uh, a really good solution. Yeah, I, and it's interesting when you sort of pick out some of the big um, top end law firms, professional services firms it can be quite easy in the, with the old guard to have more people who are just like us and uh, from our schools and from, you know, uh, whatever universities that they went to, that kind of stuff. Without mentioning any names of any organisations, did you find you had to push quite hard in some places you moved into to, to change the, the rather ingrained culture of, you know, people like us? Absolutely. Um, people who uh, thought that their organisation was already a meritocracy um who felt that you know the best of the best uh, were rising to the top and that they were selecting the best of the best because the best people went to the best schools and the best people went to the best universities and that's uh, therefore that's where you should go uh, to recruit um and you know they are a product of their own experience you know they had 
I think, you know, relatively narrow lives um, and uh, hadn't interacted with people that were very different to uh, to them. And so I don't think it appreciated uh, what others could could bring to their organization. So, yes, I mean, there were you know, many difficult um, discussions and debates and um, uh, arguments about why trying to broaden uh, the range of people that we were recruiting why we needed to work harder to retain those people that we recruited because you know thinking back to how the whole you know sort of field of diversity equity and inclusion has evolved then you know you know sort of 10 or 15 years ago it was all about just getting more diverse people into the workforce and then organizations seem to believe that that's you know that you know the best would 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 rise to the top not understanding some of the structural and cultural barriers that are in place uh, that would prevent that and so you know now organizations do recognize that not only do you need to to recruit uh, from a diverse pool but you also need to work on your own culture to make sure that they feel welcomed and that they feel included and part of that organization and that there's an environment where they genuinely feel that people like them can can succeed yeah and again, without m- mentioning uh, the names of the guilty, in your experience, you know, you served in a number of different organizations and you've chosen to move on. Has there any, been any occasions where you just found it had become so toxic and you were just pushing against a rock that you decided to, to move on because you just, you know, with the culture, you couldn't change or you suddenly found you were just su- subtly being pushed to one side because they didn't like what you were bringing? Did that ever happen to you? Well, it has. It, it was, I'd say, relatively early in my career. I've been very fortunate, uh, Jonathan, in actually enjoying nearly all of the jobs that I've done. And not many people, I think, can probably say that. So, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate in that in that regard. But yes, uh, I do remember uh, you know, earlier in my career working for an organisation where um, I really did not enjoy the culture. I'd, I'd previously worked in a in a, a, a much flatter organisation. Uh, which was more egalitarian, uh, where you know, more junior uh, people were, their voices were listened to, you know, in fact, their views were actively solicited. Um, uh, and then the organisation that I was working in uh, was far more hierarchical, very much more command and control. Uh, and also, I, I would say that uh, lacked some integrity. A number of promises were made uh, about how that organisation was going to change. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, the type of culture that they wanted to embrace. I saw no signs of that at all. Uh, and that you know, lack of commitment to, to change and uh, to become a different type of organisation and to embrace a different type of culture was ultimately the thing that made me think, you know, I'm not enjoying it here. Uh, and so it is time to, uh, to move on and explore something new. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. And I think I had to do it once myself as well. And, and, and just that recognition of where you fit in and does it fit with your values? Because I think you're a man with a very strong set of values of you know, fairness and, and what is right. And uh, we were discussing you reading politics at York University, uh, York, a, a place dear to your heart and mine. Um, did, did that embed uh, further you know, your views about fairness and, and uh, right and wrong and, and the way things should be done? What, what did you learn from your time reading? Yeah, it, well, it definitely didn't, certainly. Uh, I, I wouldn't have just describe myself as a geeky kid, uh, but there was a, a, a slightly geeky side to me in that, you know, I was so interested in, 
in politics. I would go home from school and I'd watch the the, uh, the party conferences. I'd watch the TU Congress and things like this on on TV, which is which was a bit strange for a teenager. Um, so I always had this fascination for politics without ever having wanted to pursue it as a as a as a profession. Uh, and so uh, you know. I, I was uh, keen to continue to to study that, and you know, studying uh, different political systems around the world and how they how they worked, uh, different political movements from authoritarian movements like Peronism uh, to you know democratic uh, Marxist uh, regimes, um, and seeing there and learning through that, um, you know, how uh, leadership and values. It really does influence culture. Uh, and I also, I think, had a sort of a philosophical underpinning. I you know, did quite a lot of political philosophy uh, when I was there with Plato and uh, Rousseau mm. and uh, John Stuart Mill and people uh, like this that, again, I think shaped my shaped my thinking uh, as to, uh, which I think has probably influenced the way I've, you know, I've, I've thought about the, uh, the commercial world. Okay, so let me give you... Um... Uh, a possible scenario that they get in touch with you and they say, look, Kevin, uh, you know, we we know that as a political party, we, the Conservatives, the Labour, the Dems, uh, have somehow lost our way. Uh, We're not really leading. We're saying one thing and we're doing another. And the the public are losing trust in us. You know, what can we do politically to, to regain the trust of the populace by being better leaders, you know, if you were to give them a few w- choice words of where things might help a bit in the political world, what what do you think should be done? Well, I do think, uh, again, it's not very different to the commercial world. I think there is something around kind of purpose, around mission. You know, what is it? What 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 is your vision of the world that you want to create? Uh, and I would say, you know, do we have a clear vision from any of our you know, political parties to uh, today? Um, about the world that they want to create, I think the you know the Labour Party, even though it's enjoying uh, you know a sustained lead in the opinion polls, uh, you know it's not quite where Tony Blair was uh, back in the nineteen nineties, and I think that's because Blair, as a as a political leader, was successful in a way in which Starmer hasn't yet been. He may yet be successful uh, in in this in creating a sense of the type of world that Blair and uh, his uh, his team wanted to create. Uh, and so that would be my advice, you know, how how do you create that sense of purpose, that vision of what it is that you want to create? And that, of course, is, you know, the same advice as I would give to a business leader uh, in trying to engage their workforce, you know, bring that workforce with you, uh, engage them, motivate them, get them to uh, give that discretionary effort. They've got to believe in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that I think, so I think, I think there's a direct analogy there between the political world uh, and the commercial world around that vision, that sense of purpose, convincing people about the possibility of creating that so that they want to follow you uh, and want to, in, you know, want to enroll in that, in, in, the, in the project that you're leading. Yeah, that's so true. And, and how do you think it is that it's sort of, the whole integrity aspect uh, and doing the right thing rather than just saying they are, how has it slipped so badly in the last few years? What, what do you think has gone on? Uh, well, I, social social media is, is clearly creates a hugely complex um, uh, situation for uh, political leaders because it's very difficult to control their message. And again, you know, Tony Blair in the 1990s wasn't, uh, and um, I know that you're a, a fan of the podcast. The, the rest is, uh, is politics. Alistair and Rory. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And uh, but, you know, obviously, Alistair Campbell was at the centre as communications director for uh, for Blair and uh, and for Brown in getting their message out. He himself would say he did not have to deal with social media in the way in which uh, politicians and their communications advisors have to do today. It's very difficult to 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 control their message, and and it, uh, and there is an access to um, uh, you know, people are able to gain an audience uh, very easily through social through social media, uh, and uh, they they you know what they say doesn't doesn't have to be true. And, you know they they can say what they what they want, and they're not subject to a great deal of scrutiny. Um, and of course, you know, I would be the first to defend uh, the right of uh, free speech but when that free speech leads to you know hate crime and you know, such like then uh, you would do need to think about whether there might be some boundaries on, on that so i think it is very difficult uh to um uh, to control the the control the message and therefore certain leaders who are able to simplify their their their, their message um and that it is something that has a strong emotional appeal mm-hmm. as opposed to something that has a strong intellectual appeal i think when you see the sort of people who political leaders who perhaps would be described as populists, um, you know, they are saying the things that the people want to hear, uh, and that is, you know, the definition of a populist. They are saying the things that are popular with the people that gain popular uh, support without them really having a true political philosophy. Um, you know, it's very difficult to say. You know, is Boris Johnson really a true conservative? Is Donald Trump really a true Republican? They are, to some extent. Um, I think uh, different uh, to the um, the legacy of their uh, of their of the political parties, and that's very interesting. And, and you made the parallels between business and politics. And and when we take that scenario, have you found in some organisations either you've worked in or you know you worked alongside, where the CEO and the board, the leadership team, you know, say fine words, are populist but actually their integrity has slipped and, and gone. Have you seen that happen in business as much as in politics? Well, yes. And um, you know, I think that this uh, gap between saying and doing uh, is, is fatal um, yeah. for, for leaders because uh, the, uh, today's workforce uh, is, is super critical of, of leaders. Um, they have very high expectations uh, of their leaders uh, and uh, they hold them to a very high standard. Uh, and they are um, interested in purpose and values and culture uh, in a way in which I think you know, perhaps working generations of the, of the past were, were less interested in that. And they are far less deferential. Uh, and so their willingness to criticize the senior leadership um, of um, the organization uh, is far, far greater. I, I remember when I was relatively junior in my career, writing a note to go to a main, or it went to a main board director that I thought was, you know, very politely phrased, you know, professionally put together, you know, not unreasonable. And uh, I remember my uh, my boss coming out of uh, the uh, his office, having found out that this note had arrived on the on the desk of the of this main board director. With a few expletives, asking me whether you know what I was trying to do was to get him get him sacked, wow. um, and um, you know I didn't see that as you know being partic- particularly critical. But there was this 
huge sense of deference for you know the senior leadership of that organization who wouldn't be criticized now you know no senior leader today would ex- would expect to operate in that environment they they know that they're going to be criticized they know that they're going to be held account to account and therefore there is i think um much more pressure on them to be able to evidence that they are turning their words into actions and the consequences of not doing so you know tend to be uh, a loss of um uh, trust and uh, and support for that leader or, and and their leadership team. Yeah, no, it's, it's very true. And when I think back to your upbringing uh, as a, as a Whitley Bay man and a Newcastle United supporter, uh, a good true Geordie, as you were being brought up uh, with your parents and grandparents, who were both very influential on you. Were these values about fairness and how you treat other people were they embedded in you quite early on? Do you think? Or did you, did you pick it up? Pick it up on the way. Yeah, I, no, I, I think my, I think my parents and my grandparents you know, did have a huge influence um, uh, on me. Yes, I'm a proud Geordie. I haven't got very much of the Geordie accent uh, left, unless you ask me to say cookbook, uh, mm-hmm. in which case uh, you'll 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 understand where where I where I come from. Um, you know, my 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 two sets of grandparents. You know, uh, they both worked incredibly hard. Um, and so I think values around hard work and commitment and you know, having a strong work ethic um, were imbued in me by, you know, by my by my grandparents. But I, I observed two sets of grandparents that had different lives. You know, my father's grandparents lived in a nice semi-detached house with a garage. Um, they had foreign holidays. My grandfather worked on the railways and had free travel. He could go down to the south of France on the, on the train and could go on the ferries across to Scandinavia. Uh, and so my 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 dad, you know, travelled uh, internationally, um, you know, when he was growing up uh, in the um, in the fifties. Very unusual. Uh, my mother lived in a council house. Um, uh, my with her five uh, sisters, uh, three to three to a bed, a three bedroom council house. Um, and uh, my grandfather worked for the council. My uh, grandmother took in laundry uh, to uh, to add to the add to the add to the family uh, the family budget. Um, but I and I kind of wondered, well, why why one set of grandparents, you know, living like that, and another set of grandparents, you know, living um, uh, like that, sort of a little bit more hand to mouth and needing the support of their of their sort of as their families grew up, you know, needing their needing their support and feeling that you know there was some unfairness in in this because my grandfather was a very intelligent man, you know, he left school at fourteen. Um, uh, and you know, read very widely, educated himself, uh, and you know, I, I admired him enormously for for that, the way he had educated uh, him uh, himself. Uh, yet, you know, he wasn't able to advance in his career. You know, he he didn't have a you know a well paid uh, a well paid job, and so I think that that um, you know influenced me. My my parents brought me up, I think, to um, to value everybody who I came into contact uh, with, regardless. You know, we didn't. I don't think my, I think my parent, my, my my parents weren't very deferential, and I think that's something they passed on to me. You treat people um, as you find them, you know, who they are, for who they are, and not you know, not their status in uh, in the world. So, I am not a, in the least bit deferential. Status and hierarchy don't impress me at all. In fact, some of the most interesting people that I have met have been people uh, who have you know. You know, relatively low status jobs, but the lives that they have led when you when you, you, know, you talk to them about what they've done, uh, absolutely 
absolutely fascinating uh, and i enjoy their company every bit as i as much as i enjoy the company of some of the you know senior business leaders that i tend to knock around with these days yeah yeah and you you've had um many proud moments as we've discussed um before we came on air um but also it's quite interesting uh, to others who see someone like you who look like you've had a a gilded career and done incredibly well worked as your grandparents would be proud of very hard um but yet made it look terribly easy um which is which is quite a skill in itself uh, a very uh, a very sort of british approach to to doing things appearing to glide like a swan effortlessly um but you've also seen some tough times and you've had some dark moments and particularly in your field in uh, as, as a chief people officer in the in the world of people issues what would you say are some of the the darkest moments that you've been involved in and, and, and what you've had to cope with and what you learned from it, really? Yeah, um, well, I think you know, there, are, there are individual tragedies, um, suicides, attempted suicides, um, uh, people who are you know, struggling with you know, significant mental health uh, issues, um, you know, uh, bereavement, the loss of, uh, the loss of, uh, of, a, of a child, um you know as a as a as a parent the loss of a uh, of a a spouse at a at a, a young age to uh to to uh to cancer and supporting people you know through those really difficult those difficult times ensuring that the organization um deals with them in a in a in a in a in a caring and supportive uh, uh supportive way so that there are those individual you know tragedies that uh that i've had to to uh, to deal with um then there's the more organizational sort of consequences you know big redundancy programs you know people who have worked for an organization for their entire life uh, you know they've never worked anywhere else and the time comes to tell them that they're they're no longer wanted by that organization and they need to go and do something else and uh, it's very disempowering to have somebody else tell you that this is the time that you're going to leave the organization Particularly if you're very happy and you know, if you enjoyed your time there and committed your entire career to that to that organisation, um, uh, and through into of course more in more recent times, uh, Jonathan uh, COVID, um, which I think is probably the most challenging time of my career. Um, there was, you know, none of us were sort of uh, able to talk to other people who'd been through this before and say, you know, share share with me, you know, the wisdom of how you dealt with this global pandemic. Um, uh, when it happened last time, we were all making it up as we went along. There's no, there's no playbook for chief uh, people officers. And I remember somebody saying to me that you know, the global financial crisis um, was the crisis where the CFO was called in, you know, was called to account and had to step up in, you know, saving saving organisations through through those difficult times. But the COVID was the chief people officers crisis. It's where the chief people officer and the whole HR profession had to step up. Uh, and help organisations navigate through, you know, such uncertain times. And of course, there were again individual tragedies as people lost uh, loved ones uh, to uh, uh, to COVID. But also thinking about how do we how do we get the organisation through this? You know, to pivot from everybody in the office uh, to nobody in the office, They're all working uh, working remotely. Um, to people not being able to go out, to go out, not to be able to, you know, uh, get together with friends and friends and family, and you know, intense pressures on on people and uh, 
a huge explosion in mental health uh, issues at that at that time. That I think, uh, and, and not knowing how this was going to end, you know, it wasn't something where you could say, well, this is how this plays out. You know, I've done lots of big organisational transformations, and they're they're difficult. And yes, you deal with redundancies and all the all the, the change that comes from it. But you know how it's going to play out. You know where where you're headed. You know what the end game is. You know probably how long this is going to going to last. But with COVID, we didn't have any of that. It was a dealing with you know amb- ambiguity both in the short term and ambiguity in the in the long term. Yeah, it is uh, a time where there's been some really harrowing moments. I know from from many people I've been fortunate to work with to help them through those moments. And as you say, that that rise in mental health, which Lee and I see in our charity, the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, helping those who are victims of violence against women and girls, which increased massively because they, of course, yeah. they were they were stuck in the same yeah. flat with their abuser. Uh, and they couldn't go anywhere else. Um, so it just you, it's just horrendous. And if you were to give advice to people as they sort of prepare for what's coming down the line, now, do you think we're going to spend a, a lot more time remote working? You know, a lot of the city centres, whether it be New York or London, the, the offices are pretty empty. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what what is your prediction of of you know how uh, working environments going to be and the sort of the impact on people of their mental health as they work more remotely and things like this. Yeah, well, uh, what, what I hope, what I hope happens, and I think this is still, even you know, a, a couple of years um, after the the, the worst uh, of, the, of the pandemic, um, I think this is still still evolving, uh, and organisations are still trying to find you know what the right mix is between home working and and you know asking people to be present. Uh, in the office space, and of course, I mean this is this is very much a debate, really, for uh, you know that largely takes place in, 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 with professionals, because there are many people who have no choice. I mean, if you are if you're a retail worker, you've got to go into the shop. <laughs> you, you, you can't you can't serve customers you know in Primark remotely. Um, if you are a healthcare worker, you you can't do your work remotely. So, the professional classes. Have a huge privilege currently in being able to make choices uh, about the way in which they work. What I fear is that organisations are retreating from some of the benefits that we saw uh, of allowing people to increasingly work um, uh, remotely. Um, And they are being more prescriptive uh, about what people need to do. And it, it, it feels as though we were, you know, we're not in an adult to adult sort of relationship. That it's, uh, we're going back to, um, uh, you know, rather uh, paternalistic um, attitudes from organisations saying, "Well, we know what's best. We know what's best, and it's best if you come into the office three or four days a week, and we'd like it to be these days that you come into the office, rather than trusting people to figure it out for themselves." You know, I'm a great believer that people will figure this out for themselves. They'll. And of course, you'll have a, a small number of people who will abuse this. Of course, you will, as you do in any uh, with with anything. But the vast majority of people will want to be personally successful. They'll want their customers or their clients to be well served, and they will want their organisation to be successful. And they will collectively find the best way to do that, and that it will be different from team to team, from different market to different market, from different. Uh, practice area or business area to, to, to business area. And so being prescriptive, you know, just uh, it, to me is absolutely the wrong way 
to go. Uh, and what was, I think, truly fantastic about the, about the pandemic uh, and to look at the, the, you know, some of the benefits that came from that was that organisations had to trust their employees who they were allowing to work at home because there wasn't somebody stood over their shoulder watching if they were, were working every minute of the day. And what happened? Productivity levels actually went uh, now, there's a consequence of that. In fact, probably you know, people did work, you know, work too hard and the intensity of it uh, wasn't, wasn't sustainable. Um, but I, I, I think that you know, the, the, the way forward is to give people choice, to embrace the flexibility that uh, the technology gives us. Uh, we've learned how to, how to work um, fully remotely. We've learned how to work in a hybrid environment uh, and trust people and teams to figure it out for themselves. Yeah, it, it is very interesting. Lynn and I were working with a uh, a big, well-known bank just before COVID hit. And we were dealing with one of their offsites where there was one of the big issues was a couple of people were given permission to have flexible working and could work from home at times. And because they had children, they were allowed to do a bit of flexibility. And the others who were in the office all the time resented this and said, this is not fair. They shouldn't be allowed to do this. They should have to come in like we do. That We're all going to be the same. And uh, it was an issue that we were going to try and lance the boil and, and get them to be more flexible and, and, and make allowance for different ways of working. As long as, you know, results only work environment. As long as you focus on, on a good result and people deliver what they do. Work is, as my old brigadier said, I worked for once, work is an activity. It's not a time or a place. And people have this idea, you've got to come to work. And anyway, COVID happened. And they all, they were given laptops and poof, they all went home and everybody was working from home. And they went, oh, this is not too bad, really. But now I'm seeing with many of the organizations I work with, who I thought two years ago were very far-sighted and flexible and going with the flow and people were happy and they found ways of interacting. I even had one guy on the, the podcast who'd written a, a, a book all about the last 20 years where he'd always run his business of one and a half thousand people remotely. And they just came together three times a year they met at a big sort of barn kind of warehouse place. They had a band that came together for the first time that never played together before. And everybody did great things with their partners. They brought their partners with them from all over the States and from India. It was, it was really great. That was fine. And now I'm starting to see, as you say, they're going, no, no, we want them in on. They've got to come in on, as you say, Mondays, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Or in fact, no, Mondays and Fridays, the, the place is empty. We need them to come in on Fridays and Mondays. And, and a Wednesday as well, and, and not caring at all how that affects the personal life with small children and all that goes on, because they're skiving and they're, and they're not working. And, and it's always the, the leadership team, they want to be in the office with their people. The people who are doing the job, they don't actually want to be there at all. They'd much rather cut out an hour and a half commuting in the morning, an hour and a half commuting at night, and use those three hours either to bit of you know, health and well-being or, or um, be more productive. And, and, it, and as you say, it's becoming very much parent-child and we don't trust you anymore. So the, the psychological safety was massive and it's shrinking. Is that, is that fit with what you've experienced? Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's right. Uh, and um, I think that uh, th those organizations that continue to embrace the flexibility and the choice will ultimately be the ones that win in the talent market, because talent will will choose to do that. You know, all the research shows that um, uh, people want to be able to make decisions that affect their own their own lives. 
uh, and organizations that, that give them that freedom to make the, those decisions will be the ones that attract the best and re retain the best talent. So again, there is a, there's a, a, a genuine commercial benefit out of embracing this way of working as well as it just being, I think, the right thing, uh, the right thing to uh, to do. And I know that um, the leaders who are, you know, making these demands that, you know, their workforce return uh, to uh, the office um, are worried about things like culture. They're worried about things like you know, learning and development. Um, and they think that if people are working in a, in a, in a you know, totally hybrid world or not coming into the office very frequently, that the, 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 the that glue that holds them together, that culture, will in, will in some way be be uh, eroded. But there, what I what I say is that, um, well, if you don't attend to it, then that is what will happen. You need to attend to your culture, and you need to you need to nurture that culture, and you need to think way of ways of reinforcing that culture that don't necessarily require everybody to come into the office five days. A week and that you as leaders that is one of the challenges of this age is how do you build the culture in an organization in an environment where you have a hybrid where you have a hybrid uh, hybrid workforce how do you build that glue how do you build that connection to the organization without everybody being physically present all the time that for you as the leadership team is one of the challenges of this time uh, and uh, don't rely on the answers of a previous age, which was we have everybody together, we can talk to them, we can see them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the way it used to be done. It's not the way in which it needs to be done going forward. Figure it yeah. out. Yeah, lovely. And then the book was called, if you ever want to read it, Office Optional. Um, and as I say, he'd been doing it before the pandemic for about fifteen years. And uh, this way of be, he was creative in the way that they came together, or they had a bit of workspace, and they might meet up once a month in mm -hmm. hard workspace. Didn't have any offices. And they would all come together for that, do some planning together, and then all splinter and go and get the work done. Um, we talked about values and integrity and in, uh, both in politics and in business, how we've both experienced leaders who've, um, you know, let values slip or the, the, the rhetoric doesn't match the reality. When you've been in an organization where you perhaps let things slip a bit yourself, just you just not kept an eye on something or you found the organization was doing something which, I don't know, might be, you know, mortgage-backed mortgage securities or making money from the poorest in society. What have you done to try and bring yourself and the organization back on track again, seeing that it's slipping? Well, certainly, look, I've, uh, you know, we've all we've all made mistakes uh, during our careers. So, you know, ind individually, I can look back. Um, over my career and think about think about mistakes and of course I think it is true I mean it, it's often said isn't it that you know those mistakes are the moments in which you learn learn the most and I think that is undoubtedly that is undoubtedly true so a, a life led without mistakes well one that's an impossibility but two it wouldn't be a life that's full of learning um, and so what I think um, when I recognize that I've made mistakes, uh, Jonathan, what I tend to do is I do have a period of reflection. I do think about it. I, you know, I try and understand why it is that that, that that happened. I talk to other people to get their perspective as well. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm naturally gregarious, so I enjoy talking to people. So it, you know, it's, very, it's, it's very easy for me to go out and engage with people. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I don't think I have a particularly high ego needs so 
you know, uh, I think people learn that it's actually quite safe giving me feedback. I'm not going to sort of react badly to to that. And so, you know, they are. They are I've, I've found people have been very generous actually with feedback to me through my uh, through my career. And I don't see it as criticism. You know, I see it as a. You know, it really is a truly is a learning a learning uh, opportunity. So you do need to think about what you're going to do differently, and but you do need to think about whether actually you can change and so you know there's certain learnings earlier in my career where you know i messed up on something lost track of a of, you know a program and how much we were spending on it we, we ran up a huge bill without me knowing uh, uh, about it and so you know when my boss was saying well you know how has this happened you know kevin the answer is because i wasn't paying attention to it but actually i don't think you know that's what the way i am naturally inclined and it isn't the best use of my talents and therefore what I learned was, well, I need somebody to keep an eye on that for me. I need, I've often said, uh, what, what, what I need to complement my skills is people who worry for me. I'm not a worrier. Yeah. I'm an optimist. I think, you know, things will work out fine. You know, what I need to be surrounded by is, is people who are more pessimistic than I am and uh, are more risk adverse than, than I am, who hold me back and say, whoa, whoa, hang on. You know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about it? I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And alerts me to um you know now's the time you need to worry kevin you do need to pay attention to this yeah really really well said and um you and i've spoken earlier about um purpose pq as i talk about meaning and purpose and i think you've covered this beautifully just the the vital nature of having a mission a sense of purpose in your organization uh, it's a lovely company i i work with remitly global uh based from seattle but they're a global company now and 11 years, they went from a startup to being a NASDAQ-listed company and a unicorn. And that was because they were strongly mission-led with, with trying to improve the lives of immigrants and getting them to send their money back home to their loved one, their families. And it still stays with them. So, so I think you, you are very clearly mission-driven in what you've s- sought to do. Let's go on to the, the next component of the what we talk about as the Inspiring Leadership Compass, just it's it's a, a eight points that we found. Uh, there's so many thousands of models, but we found it it really was a high contributor to high performance. The, the third one is one that's often left out of many models, which is health quotient, mental uh, and brain health, as we talk about it now. And many uh, a fascinating one I'm listening to by Dr. Mark Hyman, uh, with a, uh, a fascinating professor, is that actually mental health issues are metabolic in source that actually it is our metabolism that affects our brain health. And I just wondered um, how you would give people tips now at this stage of your career, your life, about looking after your physical health and your mental health, because uh, at times you have and at times you haven't. So what, what's your top tip? Yeah, I, I should probably be paying more attention to my physical health at the moment, I think, um, uh, than I than I do. I'm blessed in being, you know, pretty, pretty, healthy uh, and so i don't have you know any significant uh, health concerns but you know i could probably do with losing a few kilos uh, to be uh, to be honest but what i i think in the environment uh, that i've worked in um the whole issues around mental health have have of course physical health has been has been important and i do think the two are connected as you uh, as you say i think it is pretty hard to have great mental health if, if you haven't got great physical health um, and uh, and vice versa. But um, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite fortunate in, in being resilient. I described myself as an optimist earlier earlier on in our 
in our conversation. And optimism is actually probably one of one of my characteristics that I'm most grateful for, because I think it has created a resilience in me that I always think that there's an answer. You know, I will get through this. There will be something better on the other side of this. And in terms of dealing with you know those moments in in, in a career where you're under a lot of a lot of pressure, the stress is building up, uh, and you know without that optimism, it, you know, I could easily have become very very anxious. Now, of course, of course, there have been times when I've been anxious about a presentation to the board, a presentation to the executive committee, a particularly naughty naughty problem. But you know, sustain a sustained period of an, an, anxiety. You know, I I haven't really experienced that, and I, I attribute this to my to my optimism. And optimism is something that can be learned. We, one of the organisations I used to work at, we ran a program called Learned Optimism, mm. uh, and it was you know it was for lawyers, uh, and lawyers tend to be people who, you know, through their natural inclination and their professional training, are sceptical. Uh, and are pessimistic, and that's you know that's what you know you want in a lawyer. You don't want an optimistic lawyer. You don't want a lawyer who's going to say, "Don't worry, Jonathan. I'm pretty sure everything's going to turn out turn out fine." You you want a lawyer that's worrying about all the downside risks uh, that uh, you are you are facing, and has you know some way of, of navigating uh, through through that. But they need to be able to switch that off. Uh, in other aspects of their working life uh, and also of their life out, uh, out, outside of work. And so learned optimism, I think, is one of the ways that people can help build their own resilience uh, to inevitable pressures that we're under uh, at work uh, today. Yeah, uh, and that was the work of Dr. Martin Seligman, who was one of a whole group of people on the sort of positive psychology side, yeah. which yeah. I'm a, a big fan of too. Uh, and and thank you for that. And um you're in a field where you know, people expect the CPO and the HR function to be, you know, highly emotionally intelligent. EQ, you know, was the big thing. It was, you know, five times more important than IQ. And people were always hiring for IQ, but they weren't looking at EQ. Mm -hmm. But actually, my experience has been that you tend to get some specialists, very much policy driven in the HR function, who actually sadly lack Huge amounts of emotional intelligence. They know all the facts and the rules and they're caught in that little world and their silo, but they're not really picking up how, how people are feeling. What did you do to try and get that sort of your profession to be much more emotionally intelligent and pick up the the the, the finger spitzgefühl, the fingertip feel the Germans talk about yeah. of what was really going on? Well, um there is a there is a role um, for you know more technical, deep technical specialists. You know, particularly when you think about areas like compensation uh, and, uh, and 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 benefits. And um, you may not necessarily always find that the, the skills that will lead somebody to be successful in a, in a deeply technical field like that are necessarily the skills that mean they're going to be very good with you know internal clients, internal internal customers. Uh, and so there is, I think, you know, a piece around organization design and thinking about who are the people who you know, face off against the internal clients and making sure that they have uh, the right skills and the right development to engage and, and, and truly to treat them as 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 clients and, and see them as uh, as uh, as clients. Yeah, and, and, you know, as part of professional development, I think it's true in HR, it's true in other professions that um you know, being able to bring your professional expertise to bear with the client 
requires more than technical expertise. It does require, as you say, it requires these, with this broader set of skills and emotional intelligence and uh, interpersonal interpersonal skills. Uh, and so investing in the development of professionals in that domain is every bit as important as investing in professionals in their, in their technical skills because they can't actually leverage their technical skills unless they have the the the, e, the eq and those interpersonal skills you know just the technical stuff just goes to goes to, goes to waste yeah. and so that investment i think in um uh, in 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 those you know people rather dismissively i think sometimes call them soft skills i don't have anything soft about them uh, at uh, at all but in the in the ability to be able to build meaningful interpersonal relationships that are based on trust um that is a skill set that can be that can be learned. Uh, people can develop those those skills, and in the professional world in which I've worked, it, it's it's important both for the HR world and also in the in the world of um, uh, the lawyers and the accountants and the consultants that I've uh, that I've worked with. Yeah, and and have you seen the, the 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 focus shifting from just high IQ, super bright people from the right universities and the right schools or the right other employers, just like us? to iq plus eq have you have you seen that shift um sadly not enough of it yeah um i think that i've been having the same conversation for about the last 20 years mm. uh which is that um you know and you know, different things come into vogue but you know it is essentially that ability to be able to interact with uh, interact with uh, with uh, with people that we're talking about um that's still too many uh, professionals are promoted within their organizations based on the depth of their technical expertise uh, and they get promoted into senior roles and actually their, their their interpersonal skills are pretty poor their ability to be able to lead their teams engage with their teams uh, understand their teams uh, is um, uh, is not well developed and there, so there's still an enormous room for improvement in in the organisations in which I've worked, and you know, I would say it's true of all of them. I don't want to call any 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 one out as being better or worse than the other. There's room for for improvement in all of them, in truly valuing the rounded skill set that is required for success in a leadership role. Now, in professional services, that leadership role manifests itself in different ways. You know, there's leadership, organisational leadership, uh, you know, more traditional organisational leadership, but there's also leadership in the client in the client sphere and in 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 markets but you know that broader skill set is as relevant to somebody who's going to be a senior client relationship partner um as it is in somebody who's going to you know lead one of the one of the business the business areas yeah i i i've seen that so many times and uh we used to in the military call it nanp and in business i call it nans not allowed near soldiers or not allowed near people, that they were so bright, but you'd keep them in a little ivory tower working on some strategy or policy, but don't let them be near near soldiers or near people. And th this is why the military had two-year tours for its officers uh, on a frontline role, leading soldiers on combat, and then two years in a staff job, whereas in famously with, uh, you know, uh, General Malchit and, and uh, Blackadder, all the, there was the, the rubber desk Johnnies who were always staff officers, and then there were the, the poor bloody infantry who were out there dying in their thousands. And interesting enough, you and I were talking about the bike ride I did just uh, recently, 500 kilometers in five days, through many of the battlefields of the First World War and the Second World War. And it was very powerful for me going uh, back to sort of Passchendaele and Ypres and, and going through the Menin Gate 
in Ypres, which my grandfather must have in the Honourable Artillery Company, walked through as they went forward to the front line and he got wounded twice during various battles. But just, uh, we have no idea of what that whole generation went through. And um, I just, I think that really sort of takes me on to my next one, which was resilience. Because, you know, that generation had to learn to be resilient. We're now seeing that for the Ukrainians in a war with Russia that's going to go on for many years. People don't realize just how long it's going to go. When, as someone described it, when a uh, irresistible force uh, meets a non-moving object, you know, there's going to be something, uh, something going on for a long time. Uh, what's your top tip on resilience that you've either practiced yourself or you've seen leaders in business practice? Um, so I think they, um, it's having, um, having strong relationships with, with colleagues. Um, you know, it, it's a lonely place uh, being a leader in any organization. Um, and many leaders I fear don't talk enough to other colleagues about the issues that they're facing for fear of, you know, being seen as weak or, you know, not having the ability to tackle these issues them, uh, themselves, not being able, not being able to cope. Um, but um, I think it is true. A problem shared is a problem halved. Uh, and uh, I think having, this is where professional partnerships actually, I think are pretty good uh, because, you know, some of those relationships have been built up over, over very many years uh, and that partners often have within the partnership their own support network who they can go and talk to or who are nowhere near their sort of the line management structure and uh, and what have you give them good insight and, and, and advice and so you know I think that far too many leaders uh, see it as a sign of weakness to have to go and sort of seek advice and you know insight from uh, from others um, I have to say I've always found it hugely beneficial to go and say to people like oh, you know really and they're incredibly flattered you know jonathan you know i'd love your insight into this particular problem that i that i've got you know your wisdom all of your experience can you can you help me sort of think my way through this chest puffs out oh, of course i can you know you're you're one of the people that kevin's chosen to to come and talk to and get advice from wow. um and uh you know and of course you don't always need to you don't need to accept all of the advice that people give you know it's entirely up to you to Sort of process it and filter it and you have to use your ultimately you have to use your judgment but getting those different inputs from different people and different perspectives uh i have found you know at times when i've been struggling with some 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 problem feeling the weight of that 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 problem on my on my shoulders go go go, go and talk to some people and also equally they don't need to be within the organization again i've, I've i'm sure as you have uh jonathan a number of people who you know, who i go to to seek advice and they've been a, a part of my career for a very very long time and have seen the highs and the lows of my uh, career and know me very well uh, and uh, I often go and seek their advice and their views on things that are troubling me. Yeah it's, it's, it's essential to have that and so I've just got a, a very wriggly uh, young uh, black cocker spaniel puppy here who's decided to come and join me for the, for the, for the briefing. Um, the other one I was going to ask you about executive teams when uh, you've got a toxic team what have you done to turn a team around? Um, I think you do have to um, take some time to do quite a detailed diagnostic. You know what what is it that's going on? It's, it's um, often the the issues that are that are presenting themselves are not necessarily the root cause of the of the problem. So um, it's quite 
tempting, I think, to try and jump in and try and solve solve the problem. There's an urgency. It's an unpleasant environment to to work in. You know, decisions aren't being made, or they aren't being made very well, or they're not being implemented very well. So, you know, the, 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 there's an urgency to, to 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 tackle these issues. Often, you know, maybe it's uh, somebody who's asking you to to go in and uh, and to intervene, and therefore you feel that that pressure uh, of wanting to get back to them and say, this is what I think we ought to ought to do and kind of move to solutions too quickly. So I do think, you know, you need to take your time, do a thorough diagnostic. The nature of that diagnostic will obviously vary depending on, on what the what the nature of the issues uh, are. But then again, uh, I you know, would encourage people to consult, you know, talk to other people uh, about this around, you know, what some of the potential solutions uh, might uh, might actually be there is there is often um, no substitute for tackling the issues head-on um, and again it's context specific I think as to whether that's done within the team environment itself or with uh, with uh, with individuals often it needs to be done at both at both levels um, with the individuals and with uh, and with the with the team and I think going back to what we were talking about um, uh, earlier is trying to true back to, you know, what is it that we are trying to achieve here? What, you know, are we being successful in delivering on our purpose, on our on our mission? Are we behaving in a way which is true to our values? Are we, uh, you know, are we role modeling those, uh, those, those, those values? To try and depersonalize it, not to say, you know, Jonathan, the problem's, you know, you, but to you know, have something to true true back to you, and then the problem may be you, Jonathan. Uh, but you know, there's a way into that discussion uh, which depersonalizes it by going back to you know, you know, we're, we're really not achieving our purpose here, are we? So you know, let's let's have that let's have the conversation about why about why that that is. I mean, ultimately, and I've done plenty of uh, this, as you would imagine, given the nature of my role. Sometimes people do need to be removed from teams. Um, that actually there isn't a fix uh, with that individual. That actually they're not the right fit for that for that uh, for that time. The behaviours that they're demonstrating aren't appropriate, uh, and uh, you need to face into into that and, and take the uh, you know, take that action and, and remove them from the from the from the team. And you have to face up to the fact that that you know that is sometimes uh, sometimes necessary. I've done plenty of that sadly during my yeah. during my career. We could we could have used you in some of the uh, the dramas the Conservative Party had lately with who they should <laughs> be removing. But that's a whole story in itself. Thank you. And, and I think that's particularly helpful because, you know, many go for the just take the action. But actually, as you say, you need to actually do a fair investigation of what's going on. Uh, not, not take too long, but certainly mm-hmm. enough time to, to see what re- what's required and what changes can be made, which will actually quickly resolve it. Mm-hmm. OK, great. We're on the, the, the home run now, just the last few minutes. Um, favourite book, Kevin, on leadership and why would you recommend people uh, listen to it or read it? I mean, I'm an audio book man, so if it's in right. the audio version, I'd be pleased. But what would be your right. Uh So it's a book, actually, I read a long time ago. I've reread uh, a few times uh, since uh, Synchronicity, um, which uh, has a, a subtitle of The Inner Path of leadership by uh, Joseph Jaworski, um, and it's an easy read because it's a story. It, it, um, uh, Jaworski tells the story of his of his life, uh, and through that, um, it, it illustrates how um, you need to deepen your understanding of reality and get grounded in uh, the reality of what's uh, what's going on, 
in order to be able to shape the future. If you don't have um, an understanding of the current reality, how can you possibly you know, start to move to a, uh, to, uh, towards a, a, different, a different future? But I think importantly, he talks about the need to change the way we see the world, um, how we understand relationships, uh, and uh, how we make commitments to uh, to 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 one one another. I, I found it profound when I when I read it. Um, uh, more probably more thought provoking than than you know the vast majority of books that I've read, which is which is why it immediately came uh, to to mind. I currently don't have a copy on my on my bookshelf to uh, to the the right because when you asked me that question to think about a book, I went searching my bookshelf to find it, and then I remembered I'd lent it to somebody, and I've ne they haven't returned it to me, so they're on my list. There'll be a phone call being made soon to say, uh, "I want my I want my copy of Synchronicity back, uh, please." I hope you've uh, read it a few times given the length of time uh, that you've uh, that you've had it. Well, that uh, makes me smile. When I was with the Scots Guards in Cyprus. Um, as a dyslexic, I didn't know I was dyslexic at the time. It, it was only later in life it was worked out, probably in my 40s. But I'd uh, borrowed a book from the library, uh, which was Teach Yourself Speed Reading, because I thought, I take so long to read. I need to teach myself speed reading. And then a note was sent, which someone found in my pigeonhole. We had a little sort of pigeonhole where little notes were there. And it was from the librarian saying, Dear Captain Perks, your copy of Teach Yourself Speed Reading is now two months overdue. Please, could you return it? And of course, I hadn't got round to finishing it, which is only hilarious. But um, no, thank you for that, Kevin. I'm going to re-listen to that. I, I remember reading it a long time ago, but I will definitely get that one out again. Have a, have so, a read of that. Well, I, I, will, I, have, I have said a book that is overdue for return is, uh, we don't really use dictionaries anymore, do we? Because uh, no. everything's on everything online. But I do have, I do have a dictionary which when I open it at the front page, I am reminded I am supposed to return to the Boots Company, which is my where my very first job. Very employer. first job, yeah. So yeah. Some, somehow that made it out of the building with me when I, uh, when I left <laughs> my, on my final day. Oh, that's great. Well, look, Kevin, would you just introduce yourself in person, uh, say your name and what you do, and share your top tip on, on leadership? Sure, of course. I'm very happy to do that, uh, Jonathan. Um, uh, hello, uh, my name's uh, Kevin Hogarth. Uh, I'm a business advisor, a non-executive, uh, and a coach uh, and uh, a mentor. Uh, after a long career uh, as an executive in a number of organisations, uh, primarily in the people, culture, and organisation uh, space, um, I don't think my top tip is anything particularly revolutionary. But I, I do think its importance is as great today as it ever has been, which is about the need to build a team of diverse talents. It's more challenging as a leader uh, to have a team that is truly diverse of people who are not like you. It's more complex to manage them, to understand them. Uh, but the investment that you make in really truly understanding all of those individuals as individuals, what motivates them, uh, what will engage them, uh, understanding them as a true individual holistically, um, I think it's incredibly uh, important to understand their different abilities and what they have uh, to offer. Support and encourage them. Uh, you know, there is, I think, this rule of five times more encouragement to, to criticism. So remember that. Um, listen to all of the voices. Give all of the voices um, uh, equal uh, importance. Include everyone in the discussions and the debates. There will be some gems that the most quiet people in your team will offer you. So listen carefully uh, for those things. Recognize their achievements publicly and share uh, in their success. Um, criticize them in private 
and not in public. Stretch them with new and exciting work and be generous in sharing the most interesting things that you do as a team across the team. Help them grow and most importantly, help them move on to new challenges. Don't be selfish, don't hold them back, but help them progress their careers and take enjoyment and satisfaction through their success. Kevin, thank you, Kevin Hogarth. It's been a real pleasure having you on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You do bring a great wealth of experience from being a chief people officer in so many different organizations. And I'm sure a lot of people will get great value from this podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We hope we've ignited your curiosity, broadened your perspectives, and provided you with practical, pragmatic leadership tips, wisdom, and techniques that you can immediately apply from today. We're deeply grateful to our exceptional guests for sharing their stories, their vulnerabilities, and their insights. They and I provide this service to you for free. And all we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader that you know, one other person that you know that you think will benefit from this so they can take away the inspiring leadership tips, techniques, and the wisdom provided. Please subscribe, follow, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, and my social media platforms. My favorite one is to follow me on LinkedIn, but also you can use Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, especially on LinkedIn. Share your thoughts, your suggestions, and topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Your input shapes the direction of your podcast. And if you've been led by exceptional leaders, really, truly inspiring men and women, whatever field you're in that you think have a great story to tell, please get in touch and make a suggestion and an introduction. We have a great lineup of people and there is a queue of great people waiting to share their stories with you. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Stay tuned for more fascinating guests that will fuel your own leadership journey. We'll be back sharing them with you next Tuesday.